The following Bible lesson and other Bible information can be found on the official Dean Bible Ministries website. That's found at www.deanbible.org. That's www.deanbible.org. Or write to Dean Bible Ministries Incorporated. That's at address 5868 Westheimer. W-E-S-T-H-E-I-M-E-R, number 461, Houston, Texas, 77057. Dr. Dean is the pastor of West Houston Bible Church. And now, here's Dr. Dean with the Bible lesson. Okay, a couple of announcements before we get started. Come on in. Come on in. We're just on announcements. You don't have to... Be afraid to walk in. I don't know how many of you noticed that there's a letter from Eager, Smolensk, is that his name? Something like that. One of Jim Meyer's students who's uh, out developing a workout uh, side of Kiev, about 100, 150 miles, so you would be interested in that letter. Also, there is an update on Ava Shriver, who's a young girl. Ava's about, what, she eight, seven? And Ava's got child, uh, childhood leukemia, and she's the daughter of, uh, uh, of uh, Donnie and Debbie Shriver. And some of you know her grandfather, Don Shriver. And she's in extremely serious condition, and she's been fighting this childhood leukemia for uh, several years. And she's in the... Um, She's gone through a bone marrow transplant, and there's a number of other complications. And Donnie sent me a one-page email outlining and enumerating the different areas of prayer requests. So rather than go through that, uh, we just printed copies down there so you'll know how to pray and the specifics on that. And then I'm going to go down there in the morning, check on them. Let me see what else. There's something else of significance. Oh, yeah, it's right here. Ladies' Prayer Luncheon on the third Saturday, and that is approaching. This is the second Saturday on the 10th, so this will be on September the 17th at Bill Joan Westfall's house, and there will be information in the bulletin on how to get there right, and we'll have a little map. There's maps over here. All righty then. Anything else? The air conditioning's on. We can thank the Lord for that. Okay, well, everybody better buckle their seat belts. We're in for a Fast and furious ride tonight as we get into uh, Hebrews 2, 5 through 9, try to wrap it up. But the last couple of verses are just dynamite as it starts to lay the foundation for the rest of the chapter. So before we get started, let's have a word of prayer, a few moments of silent prayer to give you the opportunity to make sure you're in fellowship, ready to focus on the word, and then I will start in prayer. Let's pray. Father, again, we thank you that we can come together tonight to study your word, to focus on all the things you have done for us, provided for us, understand that everything in our life is part of a greater, broader plan that you have worked out through history and that will not see its culmination till the millennial kingdom and then on into eternity. Father, we pray that uh, since everything hinges on who the Lord Jesus Christ is and what he accomplished on the cross, that as we study these things tonight, you will broaden our understanding and the, the depth of our understanding of his work on the cross and its cosmic application and the implications of it for our own salvation and our own spiritual life. Father, we continue to pray for Ava, and we pray that you would just give the doctors wisdom, but just heal and strengthen her body, that she can properly respond to these uh, treatments. We pray for her parents, that you would strengthen them spiritually during this time, and we know that many around them are encouraging them with their word, and we pray that this would be a time of positive growth for them spiritually in this test. And, Father, we also thank you for the provision of a place to meet and a new place to meet, and we pray that you would guide and direct that process. We pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen. And uh, for those of you who don't know, we voted a couple of weeks ago to enter into a lease on the property on the Beltway, and we've been strangely silent about that for the last two weeks, and that's because the management company wanted to go back and 
renegotiate a lot of the terms. And it was like, what? So it's just another one of those situations. Remember, life is an open book test. And so it seems that they are now writing the lease according to the terms that we originally agreed on. And, and that's why everything just sort of stopped and you didn't hear anything. Is We didn't hear anything. We're trying to figure out what's going on. So that's where we are. Open your Bibles with me to Hebrews 2. Hebrews 2. And this builds, as I have said before, our second point in the development of our understanding of what the writer of Hebrews is trying to get across related to living today in light of eternity. And we have to always make sure that we're interpreting Scripture in light of its context, and that means you have to understand where a piece of literature, a book of the Bible, is going. Every book has different uh, has a different argument is the correct term, and that's not an argument like two people bickering. It's an argument like that of a lawyer before a, tri- uh, a trial jury. You are developing a rationale to build a case for something, and every book of the Bible has a major argument or theme, and it's not always important that you know it as a, as a believer because uh, it's, it's important for interpreting the passage as a pastor. Uh, when you get out in the trials and the uh, problems of life, it's not going to be important that you know the argument of Hebrews. What's going to be important is that you've been taught what Hebrews is, is talking about so that you can apply those principles to the situation as you go along. But the argument is important to help us understand the meaning of the text in terms of its interpretation. And so we have seen that the writer is building a case, and he lays out a point, and then he ends the point with an application and a warning, and then he goes to the next point, which unfolds out of some things he said in the first point. And so we come to chapter 2, verse 5, and this is the beginning of the second section, from 2.5 down to 4.13. And he begins by saying, For... And this is an explanation in the Greek. The Greek word is gar and indicates that he is developing a further explanation based on what he has already said. And it's not based on what he said in verses 1 through 4 because that was the application that came out of the first chapter. He is going back to the first chapter, the emphasis on Christ's superiority to the angels, and now he is expanding on that so that we can see where things are headed. And this verse gives us that orientation, that he has not put the world to come of which we speak in subjection to angels. And that phrase, of which we speak, orients us time-wise to what the focus is here. He's not focusing on uh, directly on our life here and now, but our life here and now as it relates to that future world to come. And the term for world, that world to come is oikumene in the Greek, which refers to an inhabited place, the inhabited world. And here it is that future world, and he's talking about the millennial kingdom. And this whole book, you're going to get so sick of hearing that phrase, living today in light of eternity, is about preparation for a band of believers who have what it takes to live the spiritual life today, to advance to spiritual maturity so that we are prepared to rule and reign with the Lord Jesus Christ in the coming kingdom. Verse 5 should be translated a little more correctly, for he, that is God the Father, did not subordinate to the angels. The emphasis in the Greek is on not to the angels. That's the very first phrase in the Greek text. For God the Father did not subordinate to the angels the inhabited world, which is to come, or that is the future human civilization of which we speak. The focus is that it's not angels that are going to be ruling in the future millennial kingdom. It is human beings. This is crucial to understand God's plan and purposes for the human race, and especially as it relates to the angels and the angelic conflict. And so to develop this, he goes back to an Old Testament passage in Psalm 8, verses 4 through 6, and quotes that out of the Septuagint version of the Old Testament. Now remember, the Septuagint 
Septuagint was the Greek translation that the rabbis made of the Hebrew Old Testament so that the Jews in the diaspora who'd forgotten how to read Hebrew and understand it uh, could understand the Old Testament. It was made approximately uh, 200 B.C., 200, 150, 100. In that second century B.C. was the period of time that the Septuagint was translated. And it was called the Septuagint, sept meaning 70. It was called the Septuagint because the legend was that 70 rabbis in 70 days translated the law, the Torah, the first five books of the Old Testament, from Hebrew into Greek. And so we had the Septuagint. That was the, that was the pocket Bible of everybody at the time of Christ, is that they used the Septuagint. That was what many of the Jews were most familiar with, just as many Americans, not so much today, but 20 years ago, were more familiar with the New King James. And so this is what the writers translate. Now, sometimes there's some differences between the Hebrew Masoretic text that we base our Old Testament on and the Septuagint. And we have one example of that in this passage. But because God the Holy Spirit has taken the translation, even if it might have not have been a correct translation, it was still correct in what it said. When God the Holy Spirit takes it and quotes it, all of a sudden it becomes... Uh, inerrant. It's inspired. God the Holy Spirit is putting his stamp of approval on it. So here we have the, the, the question, a rhetorical question quoted out of the psalm. What is man that you are mindful of him? What is, are the son of man that you take care of him? You've made him a little lower than the angels. You've crowned him with glory and honor and set him over the works of your hands. You've put all things in subjection under his feet. Now that's the end of the quote. Then the writer of Hebrews makes his point. He says, for in that he, that is God the Father, put all in subjection under him, he left nothing that is not put under him. How do you like that double negative there? Nothing that is not put under him. See, by using a double negative, he's enforcing the reality and emphasizing the fact that everything, without exception... Everything without exception is put under the authority of Christ. And then he says, but now we do not yet see all things put under him. Now, last time we went through some of this, and I want to go back to Psalm 8. We almost finished Psalm 8, and we have to tie this together to understand what this is driving at. And then we'll get to verse 9, which draws out the conclusion. Psalm 8 is a psalm that relates to the praise of God. And it is a meditation upon the greatness of God. And as the psalmist is thinking about and reflecting upon the greatness of God and his attributes, he is drawn to a comparison that God is so awesome and so magnificent, so powerful, compared to God, man is just an insignificant molecule in the expanse of the galaxy. Why does God pay attention to us? In other words, are we just a cosmic accident that's a result of an accidental electrical discharge in a gas cloud? Or is there some real significant value to the human race and to human beings? And so he locates the meaning of man in the glory of God. Verse 1, he says, O Yahweh, our Adonai, how excellent is your name in all the earth. That is your character. Who set your glory above the heavens? Out of the mouth of babes and nursing infants you have ordained strength because of your enemies, that you may silence the enemy and the avenger. Then verse 3, When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, when I look at the intricacy of a flower bloom, when I look at the details in a in the cell structure of the world, when I... Uh, look at the magnificence of the weather systems and how they interact. When I examine the work of your fingers and look at the galaxies, the moon and the stars, which you have ordained, in comparison to all of that, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you visit him? Verse 4 is the rhetorical question that is the focal point of the Hebrews quotation. Now, in the Hebrews, I pointed out last time, the word for man is the word enosh, 
which is a word not for male, but is the word, a generic word for the human race. It's been interesting that ever since the beginning of time, God has referred to the human race in terms of the male leadership role designated at creation. That's interesting. In the, in the original languages, it's mankind. It's not humankind. It's not the human race. It is mankind. So whenever you fall prey, and those of you who are taking any college classes, all your literature professors and writing professors are all going to tell you that you can't be, uh, you can't be a, uh, uh, politically incorrect. You, have, you can't use terms like mankind. You have to use humankind or something like this. And when you do that, I know that sometimes as a student you have to do that to pass the grade because you've got uh, real radical liberals in the classroom and they're beating you over the head and being intellectual bullies with everything, so you just have to go along with it. But be intellectually aware so that you don't get sucked into a, their way of thinking because that is what's happening. But words are important. Ideas have consequences and the the, the meat of an idea are the words that express it. So as soon as you start buying into this gender nonspecific language, you're buying into a worldview that is predicated upon pagan concepts and non-biblical uh, underpinnings. And so if it was good enough for God to talk about mankind instead of humankind, to say that using gender-specific language is inherently wrong, you're making a statement about God and the inspiration of Scripture that borderlines on blasphemy. And now you have people like Zondervan Publishing House, who publishes the NIV, and they now have the today's NIV called the TNIV. And the TNIV uses gender non-specific language, and, you know, including gender non-specific language about God. Now, we know God is not a male, but the emphasis in that language, male versus female, is talking about leadership and authority, because that's how God built things into the universe. So we have what is man or mankind. This isn't some sort of of a negative language. Uh, We're going to have to talk about this a lot in years to come, because young people today are being so brainwashed by this kind of thinking that what they come up with is by the time they get out of high school, they no longer understand uh, biblical views of men and women, and it's going to screw up their marriages, it's already screwing up their dating lives and everything else. Now, the next phrase that's used in parallelism to the first phrase is ben adam. Ben Adam, which means son of man. So this is a parallelism. So you have these two phrases, what is man, that you are mindful of him, and what is the son of man, that you pay attention to him, literally, that you consider him, that you analyze him. Uh, Man and son of man are then used in synonymous parallelism to indicate the human race. And the thrust of those two verses is to emphasize God's intimate Concern for the human race. The word mindful, as I pointed out last time, is a Hebrew word zakar, which means to think about, to pay attention to, and it's translated in the Septuagint with the verb memneskamai, which is the word that's used in the Hebrews 2 passage, and that means to be mindful of something, to consider it. So what is man, God? What is, why is man so important that you pay attention to him? And then the parallel word is translated visit him in the King James from the Hebrew word pakad, which is a, has a broad range of meanings in Hebrew, but it means to exercise oversight over a subordinate. The Septuagint, the Septuagint translated it with the word episkeptomai. For those of you who are wondering about this little break in the sound every now and then, what we're discovering is that this, the UHF channels, that are used for wireless mics are gradually being taken over by other uh, communication devices now. And so when I was in Connecticut and you didn't have anybody using any sophisticated UHF communication equipment around, it didn't bother us. But more and more churches now are finding that uh, with the encroaching use of UHF uh, channels and frequencies that there's interference. So we're making progress to go back to the old 
old-fashioned, hard-wired uh, cable that'll uh, tie me down. So uh, we'll, we'll get rid of those little glitches because it happens on the tapes and it happens on the video feed. And if you listen to that and you wonder what's happening, that's what's going on. Okay. What is man that you pay attention to him? What is the son of man that you exercise oversight, that you examine him closely? And Psalm 144.3 and Job 7.17 are two passages we mentioned that emphasize this. Why is it that God exalts man? What is so important about the human race? And then Psalm 8.5 goes on to say, You have made him a little lower than the angels in terms of his rank, man's original creation. He is less than the angels. He's in lower authority. Yet you have crowned him, and even though it's a past tense word there for crown, it's the PL imperfect, it is a future sense. You have crowned, and that comes in the future. It refers to the future destiny of the human race. You have crowned him with glory and honor. Now, the other word that I have up here on this slide, we'll just back it up, is the word a lo- little lower than the angels is the P.L. imperfect of haser in the Hebrew, and that means to lack something. Whenever you look at a word applying to man, dealing with his lack of something, it emphasizes in the background somewhere the grace of God that is sufficient for us, that provides for us, that gives us everything. When man is created in a dependent state, he lacks something. He's created lower than the angels for a reason. Because man's purpose is to demonstrate that the creature must be completely dependent on the creator, otherwise the unintended consequences are absolutely horrible. This is what the essence of the angelic conflict is all about. God created Satan, Lucifer, perfect angel, the most intelligent, the most uh, incredible creature God ever created, and he... Uh, succumbed to pride. He became arrogant, according to Ezekiel 28 and Isaiah 14, and he wanted to be like God. And he wanted to rule the heavens as, and the creatures as God did. He wanted to take over that responsibility, thought he could do it better than anyone else. And so God is demonstrating that the creature doesn't have the capacity to do things because he's not omniscient, omnipotent, or omnipresent, therefore he can't run things. It will eventually fall apart no matter how brilliant, no matter how intelligent, no matter how capable the creature may be, he is still finite. And so Satan challenged God, well, how can you be fair? You haven't let me do what I wanted to do. I want to prove myself. So God has a little test, a little experiment, and that's the human race. And he creates us to be dependent so that in our dependency upon him, we demonstrate that only by being dependent and obedient to the creator can there be uh, perfection and harmony. When we are not dependent no matter how innocuous that lack of dependence may appear, the reverberating consequences are such that it, it just fragments the very fabric of the universe. And the test case was the uh, tree of the knowledge of good and evil in the Garden of Eden. And it's an innocuous test. What's wrong with eating a fruit, piece of fruit? I mean, most of us have probably done that in the last week. We eat a piece of fruit and everything's just fine, doesn't fall apart, but it's an act of disobedience to God. And in that act of disobedience, there were consequences that are spelled out in Genesis 3 that reverberate throughout the universe. It changes the biological structure of the serpent, changes biological structures of various animals. It changed the biological structure of the reproductive system of the woman. It changes the relationship of the man and the woman. It changes botany so that now the soil is going to produce thorns and thistles, and it brings physical death on the creatures that God has made on the earth, including man, who will return to dust from whence he came. All of that is a result of just this innocuous little decision to eat a piece of fruit. And the point is that we think of the stuff that really messes everything up as being uh, these heinous, horrible sins. Too often they're, they're influenced by cultural 
uh, issues of the day. A hundred years ago, the big sins were uh, slavery, or 150 years ago, the big sins were things like slavery and, and uh, intemperance and uh, child labor, and we tended to define sin in terms of certain social issues. And today they're different. And uh, you, you say certain words or you... Uh, are, you, if you're politically incorrect or everybody thinks this is just some such horrible thing. But the Bible has a different view of sin. Sin is acting independently of God. And when we do, it just, the unintended and unforeseen consequences are phenomenal. And that's what God is demonstrating, is that man is made lower than the angels to demonstrate to the angels that the creature can only have success and harmony and happiness and peace if he's completely dependent upon God. And those that are will be crowned with glory and honor. That's the original interpretation of Psalm 8 in context. Psalm 8 was never understood to apply to or to be a messianic. Rabbis, Old Testament, nowhere do you have anybody interpreting Psalm 8 as messianic. But the writer of Hebrews comes along and says, no, we can apply this to Jesus, and we need to understand why. That's about where we stopped last time. Now, let's go back and just finish up Psalm 8, just so we have a, can appreciate the whole psalm. It's not that long. Psalm 8, 6 says, You have made him, that is man, to have dominion over the works of your hands. Now, there's an important phrase. Man was created to rule. We'll see that word in a minute in Genesis 1. He was created to rule, and God, and then the psalmist says, you have put all things under his feet. That was the original design. Verse 7, all sheep and oxen, even the beasts of the field, the birds of the air and the fish of the sea that pass through the paths of the sea. Everything was put under the authority of man, Genesis 1, 26 to 28. Just an aside, and I looked all over the place for this the other day and couldn't come up with it, but that last phrase, pass through the paths of the sea. There was a man, maybe somebody can research this and find it out for me, there was a scientist in the, oh, I don't know, it was in the 1700s or early 1800s, who read this reference in the Scriptures and said, you know, the Bible says there are paths in the sea. And so he went out and he studied the currents in the ocean. And he was the first one to, to discover that there were ocean currents and to map the ocean currents. And it comes because he took the Word of God at face value and believed it meant what it said. So that's just another sign that science has just fallen apart today. We don't realize all modern science is built on scientists in the 16th, 17th, and 18th centuries who believed in a biblical creation, a biblical God, and a biblical universe. And you can't have science without that because science is based on something that is consistent, repeatable, observable, and it's not repeatable and observable in a chaotic universe. And evolution must always present a universe of pure chaos and random chance. And you can never develop real scientific knowledge which implies consistency and stability in the laws of nature if you didn't have a presupposition of creation. Just a little side note. Psalm 8, 9. O Lord, the psalmist concludes, O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is your name in all the earth. The whole psalm is not designed to talk about man, but to talk about God and man's role in relationship to God. And the key verses for interpreting Verses 5 and 6 are in 6 through 8. You have made him to have dominion over the works of your hands. Now, where would you go to find out what that means? Remember, Scripture has to interpret Scripture. You don't just look at this psalm and say, hmm, let's figure this out. No, you, you have to fit it in the context. All of Scripture is coherent and interacts and interconnects with other parts of Scripture. That terminology comes right out of Genesis 1. Genesis 1, 26 to 28, gives us our first understanding of who we are as human beings, as who mankind is, what we were created for, our purpose, our destiny, our role. In Genesis 1, 26, then God said, Let us make man 
in our image according to our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the sky, and over the cattle, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Now, the important word there is that word rule. And, and uh, well, first of all, before we get to the verb, let's get at the core idea here, and that is that man is created in the image and likeness of God. Man is created in the image and likeness of God, and the term image is the Hebrew word sal, salam, which in the form it's in is bet salmenu, which means in the image, and according to our likeness. Now, these words are used in conjunction to relate the fact that man is created as a reflection, as an image, as a, almost as an expression of who God is. He is designed to represent God. That's the function of the image, is it represents God. If you go to a Roman Catholic Church, you'll see an image of Mary. Well, what does that represent? It represents Mary. You go to an Orthodox church, you'll see other icons and images that represent Jesus and represent the disciples. That's the function of an image, is to be representative. And so what God is saying here is that we're going to make man as our representative, and he's in our likeness. He is a finite replica of God. Man is designed to represent God as God's vicegerent. Now, that may be a new word for some of you. It's not vice-regent. I'm not mispronouncing it. I didn't get dyslexic and have a problem with the word vicegerent. That means that he is God's viceroy. God establishes man as his authoritative representative over all creation. And as such, man is put in a position to rule creation. Now, what happened to the slide I had? I just love technology. Somehow I lost the slide. The word for rule is the Hebrew word radah, and it means to exercise dominion, to dominate something, to uh, be in control over something, to have uh, complete exercise, complete uh, oversight over something. So radah means to have dominion, to rule, or to dominate, and that is spelled R-A-D. A-H. They are to rule over the fish of the sea and over the everything, over all the birds, all the animals, everything on the, on the planet. That's because they're in the image of God. Now, when we go back to, to Hebrews 2.6 and 2.7, we have a better understanding of who man is. Let me just go through the slides. I know I developed these. There we go. We'll get the right slideshow up here to start with. Rada means to have dominion, to rule, to dominate. Man is to have that oversight over everything on the planet. Then when we get down to verse 28, God blesses man and says to them, Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. So man's role is to fill the earth. This is completely contrary to all your population, expansion theories, and everything else. This same command is repeated in the Noahic Covenant. Guess what? God doesn't say anywhere after Genesis 9, okay, stop filling the earth. It's going to continue to fill. We're going to continue to populate the planet until the Lord comes back. Guess what? They're going to populate the planet in the Millennial Kingdom until it is filled and subdued because that is the dominion Mandate in the original creation covenant. This is man's mission. And he is to subdue it. That means he has to study everything in there. He has to classify all the animals. He has to understand all the laws of physics, all the laws of chemistry, everything related to all the various different systems that operate on planet Earth and bring them under his control, an intellectual control, not in a harsh, destructive manner, which is what happens in carnality. This is not a a principle that justifies corporations going out and raping the land. That was used that way. There is a true biblical creation form of environmentalism. 
And that is to properly use creation, to use it responsibly, and to preserve it so that it's not destroyed. But we also have to understand what human limitations are and aren't. And that it's not mankind that's creating global warming. You know, global warming and all the junk science that backs it up is all the result of evolutionary presupposition. So what we need today is Christians who are willing to think profoundly in this area and build a biblical theology of environmentalism. And so Christians can operate that, that's based on creation, not a view of the environment that's based on evolution and paganism, which is what you get with certain former vice presidents. Now we go back to uh, one last point. The Hebrew word for subdue is kabosh, which means to bring something into control. And we're not, because of sin, we never accomplish this during this age before the millennial kingdom. It really only comes under control as a result of Jesus Christ who fulfills all of this as representative man. And this is fundamental to what we understand in the next couple of verses. This is why the writer of Hebrews comes back and he quotes this, because Psalm 8 in its original con- context applied to the human race. Why does God pay attention to man? It has to do with his original creation mandate. But when Adam sinned, and as a result of the fall, the creation came under the curse, so God sends his son who takes on true humanity and becomes the ideal man, the perfect man, the second Adam, who is going to represent the human race in order to completely fulfill the original intent of Genesis 1, 26 to 28. So that's why the writer of Hebrews applies Genesis 2, 6 to 2, 8 to Jesus Christ. And he says, you have put all things in subjection under his feet in the beginning of 2, 8. And then he applies it. For in that he, and that he refers to God the Father, for in that he put all in subjection under him. Now I want to key in on this word all. This is crucial. And let me tell you where we're going. When you get down to verse 9, we're going to hit one of the great passages that's not usually talked about too much in the debate over the extent of the atonement. Some of you aren't familiar with that. It's a great debate that's gone on for centuries. Did Jesus die for everyone or did Jesus die only for the elect? It's the, one of the major sticking points between what's called Calvinism and Arminianism. It's the L in the acronym TULIP. TULIP is a five-letter five acronym to define Calvinism. T for total inability, U for unconditional election, L for limited atonement, I for irresistible grace, and P for the perseverance of the saints. The L in TULIP stands for limited atonement, that Christ died only for a limited number of people. He didn't die for everyone. And so the difference between a five-point Calvinist and a four-point Calvinist is whether one holds to limited atonement or unlimited atonement. Dr. Lewis Berry Chafer who was the founder of Dallas Seminary, was actually a what we'd call a three-and-a-half-point Calvinist. He held to unlimited atonement, and he didn't hold to a lordship view of perseverance of the saints. So he was sort of a three-and-a-half-point Calvinist. He did hold to uh, unconditional election and irresistible grace, though. Now, what we're seeing in this passage is this emphasis on this word all. So when we get to verse 9 and it says that Christ tasted death for all, literally in the, in the Greek, then we have to understand all in context, in the flow of this argument. And that really begins with his application of verse 8, that all things, does that leave anything out? No, see, the terminology is all, meaning all without exception. See, Calvinists will pull this little tricky word game on you. You'll hear somebody get up, he really doesn't want to fly his colors and say he believes that Christ died only for the elect. So he'll say, Christ died for all without distinction. Instead of Christ died for all without exception. 
Now just work with that a while. What he means by all without distinction is that that he can he died for for all believers without a distinction between Jew and Gentile. That's what he's really saying. Uh, you, you, you know, sometimes theology is a lot worse than trying to work your way through a legal contract. That's why so many theologians over the years were lawyers. Schofield was a lawyer. Darby was a lawyer. Calvin was a lawyer. Arminius was a lawyer. All these guys were lawyers. Gee, I hope we're not too tainted by all that legal stuff. Anyway, you put all things in subjection under his feet. This is the Greek word pas, and here it's the neuter plural accusative, and the form is panta. So it's you put all things, but it doesn't have the definite article, but nevertheless, it's properly uh, nuanced to mean all things. Then in the rest, in the commentary, the writer of Hebrews says, for in that he, God the Father, Put all things, and here you have the phrase ta panta. Ta is the uh, definite article. Again, it's a neuter plural. You put all things. It, if it was masculine or feminine, it would relate to people. But here it's talking about, it's a neuter, it's talking about all things. For in that he put all things. Is that all things? Everything without exception? Every, every microscopic particle in the universe is in subjection, going to be in subjection to Christ, right? There's not going to be some little area that's not? That's right. Every microscopic particle, every atom, every subatomic particle is going to be in subjection under Him, meaning Christ. He left nothing, He, meaning God the Father, left nothing that is not put under Him. Notice the double negative again. In other words, everything is put under Him. By saying he left nothing that was not put under him, he is reinforcing and emphasizing what he is saying is that every single particle of the universe, all the galaxies, everything, every detail is put under the authority of Jesus Christ. But, there's a contrast here at the end of the verse, but now we do not yet see all things that are put under him. In other words, we don't ex- we don't see that visually in terms of our own em- uh, empirical data. The phrase there, but now, is the Greek word noondead. Noon is one of the words for now, but it indicates right now, that is at this present time. So there's a contrast that positionally everything has been put under subjection to Christ. But now, that is right now in this age, we do not yet see this. And the word that is translated see is the Greek horao, the present active indicative of the verb, and it means to perceive, to be aware, and to observe. So what this is talking about is we don't have direct observation of this right now. It hasn't happened yet. It's going to happen in the future when Jesus comes back at the second coming, but we don't see it now. In other words, the whole kingdom now theology that dominates many of the charismatic churches today and is what undergirds the whole uh, theology of, um, you know, make everybody feel better, encourage everybody, motivational theology, motivational churches. What most people don't understand is this came out of a theological matrix that developed in the 60s and 70s in charismatic churches that was called Dominion Theology or Kingdom Now Theology. Because we're living in some form of the kingdom now, you've got kingdom power, praise God. And you can just claim the power of the Holy Spirit, and you can have dominion over everything, and you can speak in, in faith, and you need to take dominion over thing in faith. I keep wondering what happened to the dominion now, kingdom now, health and wealth boys in New Orleans last week. I haven't heard a lot from them. That's because their theology just got blown away in a hurricane. It's gone with the wind, I wish. But see, the point is we're not living in a form of the kingdom right now. We don't have that kingdom power today. You can't take dominion over things in the name of Jesus today. That is, that is horrible theology. It comes out of paganism and it comes out of post-millennialism. So we don't yet see all things put under him. Now, but we do see something, verse 9. 
In contrast, the fact that we don't see everything put under him, we do see something. We see Jesus. And it's a different Greek word. Now, let me tell you something. This is just one of those things that just really aggravates me today in scholarly academic circles. And that is that you'll find these guys, it comes out of Dallas Seminary over and over again. You see, you have two different words for see. Back here you have horao, and over here you have blepo. Now, what's the difference? Well, in a lot of places there's not a lot of difference. But when you have them this close together, we ought to think, if we believe in the inerrancy of Scripture, that every word is inspired by God the Holy Spirit that the God is making a point of a difference. But what you have today is pe- people come along and they say, well, you know, this is just the writer. He's just, he doesn't want to use the same word over and over again. So this is just a stylistic variation. What they've just done is they've diluted the doctrine of inerrancy and infallibility by this pusillanimous approach to language, which really has its roots in postmodern linguistic theory. And it is so subtle that most of these guys, because they don't have a good framework from the Scriptures, they don't understand that they're picking up these ideas and they throw them out because it sounds so sophisticated and so, you know, avant-garde and, and uh, we're not going to draw tight little lines of doctrine and theology. So, so you just can't make these differences. It's just stylistic. It sounds so good and it's just hogwash. But the, when their generation of students go into the the lecterns and the pulpits of our country, they water down theology. Nobody pays attention to the basic language structure of, of, uh, of the New Testament. You, they still produce Greek and Hebrew scholars because that's what they think they ought to do. But these guys are coming out of seminary with the knowledge of Greek and not knowing how to use it. And it is a tragedy of our times. And you know what? You'll go talk to some professor at Dallas Seminary and they'll say, oh, that's not true. Well, that's just the blind leading the blind. We see Jesus who was made a little lower the angels. Now, this word we see is the word blepo. And like I said, blepo and hurao can overlap a lot. That's what synonyms do. But the reason they're synonyms is because there is a shade of difference between any two synonyms. And that's why you choose one word over the other is to emphasize that fine uh, difference, that, that fine nuanced difference between the two. And the idea here is, is, but we see has the idea of what we see with our mind, what we understand, what we perceive. See, we don't literally empirically see Jesus operating now in history as the king, but we do understand and we do know what happened to Jesus at the ascension. That's the difference. So see here has almost the nuance of knowing. We don't see all things subjected to him, but we do know that he is crowned with glory and honor. Now, what's interesting in this verse is you have an extremely complicated jumble of clauses in the original Greek. So I'm going to try to uh, uncomplicate it a little bit for you so you can see what the flow of thought is. The word down, well, let's just take it one step at a time. We see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels. Now, this is almost a parenthetical clause. And why do you think it's put in there? Because it it, it is explaining in this relative clause who Jesus is. And it's connecting the Jesus of verse 9 to the man who's made a little lower than the angels in that first line in verse 7. See how this is good writing. He wants you to make, make sure you understand that the Jesus he's talking about here is that representative man that he just referred to, and you have the same verbiage that's used. This Jesus who was made a little lower than the angels. And then the next phrase is, for the suffering of death. Now, in the Greek, that's thrown up to the front part of the clause. It is a dia, preposition dia, plus the accusative of pathema, which means to, to, to suffer, And dia plus the accusative has the idea of cause. So it should be translated because the suffering of death. 
Now, do you notice anything there? If you say, but we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels because of the suffering of death. See, that makes it sound like the causal statement is related to his being made lower than the angels. In English, if you leave it where it is, it, it, you don't understand what the writer is saying. Really, the, the, what he's saying is uh, he's crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering and death. What came first, the suffering and death or the crowning? The suffering and death. And then he's crowned with glory and honor. Now, that word translated crowned is a perfect passive participle. Now, a perfect passive participle, this is where it gets a little complicated. A perfect tense always means completed, finished action. And a participle's action is always related to the main verb. Now, the main verb here is that word we see. So that means the, the crowning precedes the seeing. But now he's talking in 65 A.D. or whenever it was, around there. Uh, now we see Jesus who has been crowned. When was he crowned? With glory and honor. At the ascension. He's crowned with glory and honor at the ascension, and uh, the verb stephanao means to, to crown with the victor's crown. So, But now we see Jesus, who has been crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death. That's the thought flow. Okay, now I'm going to try to put it up here like this. This sort of diagrams the sentence for you. But we see Jesus, and then I, I put it in the same shade, Jesus, who was made lower than the angels. See, that's all expressing the same thought. That's all related. But we see, we know Jesus, who was made lower than the angels. So the phrase, who was made lower than the angels, defines Jesus, relates him to Psalm 8. Then the phrase, having been crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, is parenthetical. It relates to seeing. But we see Jesus, we see now and he has been crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death. And then you come to the last phrase, that he might taste death as a substitute for everyone by the grace of God. Now, how does that last clause relate to having been crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering and death? That's where it gets confusing if you look at the English. The main line of thought is, but we see Jesus, who is made lower than the angels, that he might taste death as a substitute for everyone by the grace of God. The last phrase explains the purpose for his being made lower than the angels. is so that he could taste death for every, everyone. Now, what does that phrase mean? Taste death. Taste death is a Semitism. That means it's a Hebrew idiom. It's not a Greek idiom. It's a Hebrew idiom. And there was a, there was a phrase used by the rabbis called to taste the cup of death. And it was an allusion to the, to, uh, the harsh reality of a violent death. Now, when we use in English the word taste, we think about taking a little morsel. You go down to HEB or you go to Central Market and on Saturday and they've got all these little samples out everywhere and you take a taste. You just get a little sample. It's just a little bit. That's not what this means in the Semitic idiom. It doesn't mean he just had a taste, a little bit of death. It means he experienced the complete human death. And that's the thrust of the idiom. It means to experience something in its fullest. So the term to taste death doesn't mean something small. It means to fully experience death. What kind of death? What kind of death related to the penalty of sin, which is spiritual death? Genesis 2-7. The instant you eat from the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will certainly die. Well, that didn't, physical death is not what occurred then. Spiritual death occurred. There was separation. Physical death is a consequence, one of many consequences to spiritual death, spiritual separation from God. So Jesus Christ tasted, he experienced death for who? For everyone. Now that's where we get into an interesting word. Because the word for everyone there is again that same word for all that is Pas, 
But here, it is a masculine. The it's pantas, not the neuter. See, when, it, when we had the neuter back in verse eight, for in that he put all things in subjection. But when it shifts to masculine, it's talking about every one. Now, if all through this passage has been dealing with all without exception, and the implication of this passage, see, all can change meanings. All can have a restrictive sense. When John says that all the Jews in Judea went out to see John the Baptist, do you think that means that every single Jew who lived in Judea went trotting down to the Jordan? No. We use all that way many times. We use all meaning most. And the Bible does too. That's just how language is used. But in this context, the argument is that because of what Christ did on the cross, all things are put in subjection to him, and he is made lower than the angels, the whole purpose for the quote, in order that he can taste death for all, because that's related to his future uh, authority over all. So you don't just worry about taking that one verse and isolating it as an argument for unlimited atonement that he actually died for everybody. We have to put it into the overall context of the section, which makes it even stronger. The whole thrust here is on universality of what Christ did, that he truly experienced death, hooper plus the genitive, as a substitute for everyone by the grace of God. That's the underlying factor is God's grace, undeserved merit of God in providing a Savior. Now, we looked at this Sunday night. For those of you who are here, we're going through basics. We're talking about salvation, and we talked about the core problem is sin, and the solution is unlimited atonement. And we talked about it to some degree the other night. And so I want to go back, and I just want to hit a few of these passages that are used in the Scripture that reinforce the fact that Christ's death was for all. This is called the doctrine of unlimited atonement. Now, the first point is the question, the theological issue that's come up. Did Christ die only for the elect, only for the few, or did he die for all? Interestingly, I'm not going to go into all the details, but Calvin clearly believed Christ died for everyone. He believed in unlimited atonement. Calvin was not a five-point Calvinist. That's been demonstrated through numerous scholarly studies. Um, But that's the issue. It came up out of a system of theology called Arminianism. That's spelled with an I, not Armenians. Those were uh, an ethnic group over in the western or eastern Turkey. We're not talking about Armenians who are starving. We're talking about Armenians who don't believe in eternal security. And the Armenians were theologians out of, out of the Netherlands following a man named Jacobus Arminius. And they held to, they postulated five basic points about about salvation. And point number one was that not, that not everyone is condemned by Adam's sins. See, right away we disagree with them. It was an integrated theological system. And so they argued that, uh, not everyone was total, they didn't believe in total depravity. They didn't believe in, uh, they believed in a conditional election that was based on works. And consequently they didn't believe in eternal security. You could lose your salvation. Number of things like that. So five point Calvinism was really a reaction to five point Arminianism. And in their response, the uh, Dortian Calvinists at the Senate of Dort uh, said that Christ died only for the elect. They had over-systematized their theological uh, conclusions. So the question then came up, did Christ die for all without exception, meaning did he die for every single human being, or did he die only for the elect, and that would be without distinction in terms of he died for both Jew and Gentile. Now, the problem that you, one problem you run into here is the meaning of the word substitution. What does it mean that Christ tasted death for everyone? Was it real or was it hypothetical? So you have, you'll find this in all kinds of tracts. Jesus died for you. Do you want to pay for your sins or have Jesus pay, or do you want to pay for your sins or let Jesus pay for your sins? Well, if I can pay for my sins, then Jesus didn't pay for them. And what you end up with is you end up 
in limited atonement. Okay, here's a scenario, hypothetical. Jesus died only for the elect, and you end up with a guy sitting here in the lake of fire. I'm roasting and toasting, and I say, Jesus didn't die for my sin, so I'm paying for him now. That's limited atonement. The way unlimited atonement is often expressed, that you can pay for your sins or Jesus will pay for them, he died for your sins, but if you don't accept it, then it's not paid. Then what happens is that I'm sitting here and I'm saying, well, the, the evangelist told me Jesus paid for my sins, but I didn't accept it, so now I'm paying for them. That means that Jesus didn't actually die for them. How does that differ from limited atonement? You see, it really doesn't. It doesn't differ from limited atonement at all. Because Christ didn't truly pay for your sins. And the verbiage that we have here, like in, in Hebrews 2.9, is that he, act, he didn't taste death for everyone if you believe. So now what I've done is I've gone back and I've looked. There's, there's three foundational doctrines in salvation where it says that Christ paid for all of it. And this is related to redemption, propitiation, and reconciliation. Let's look at the verses quickly. 1 Peter 3.18, For Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, in order that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. He died for all. 2 Corinthians 5.14, the context of 2 Corinthians 5 is reconciliation. And in verse 14 he says, For the love of Christ controls us, having concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all died. Did they all die, or just hypothetical depending on your volition. And he died for all, verse 15, that they who live, there's your, some will choose to live, and accept Christ, some won't, should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. 1 Timothy 2.3, This is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Now the all in verse 4 means that God desires every single human being to be saved. He doesn't say, well, I only desire that these believe. So desire all men to be saved has to be taken the same way as all in verse 6. For there is one God, one mediator also between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all. What ransom? What terminology is that? What doctrine is that? That's redemption. Redemption terminology. He gave himself as a ransom for all. So he paid the price. 1 Timothy 4.10 For it is for this we labor and strive, because we have fixed our hope on the living God, who is the Savior of all men, especially of believers. How much more clear could it be? He's the Savior of all men, especially believers. Second 1, 2 Timothy 2.1 but false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will also be false teachers among you, who will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing swift destruction upon themselves. What kind of terminology is bought them? That's redemption again. That's purchase. So I've seen reconciliation in 2 Corinthians 5, uh, redemption in First uh, Timothy in First um, uh, Timothy 4. First uh, Timothy 2, and also in Second Peter 2, and then First John 2, 2. He himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the whole world. Now, very quickly, we'll wrap up. I'll hit this again Sunday night. Propitiation, reconciliation, redemption are all said to be for all men. Now, when you're faced as an unbeliever, you've got three problems, three reasons you can't get into heaven. Reason number one is because you have, you're, you're a sinner, and there is a penalty for sin. Reason number two is because of the penalty of sin, you are spiritually dead. You're born that way. There's no human spirit. You're spiritually dead. Reason number three is you don't possess the righteousness of God. Now, when Christ paid the penalty for sin for every human being, he, he eradicated the first problem. The problem of the penalty of sin. He paid the penalty for everybody. Now, everybody just has two problems. Problem number one is they're spiritually dead. Problem number two is they lack perfect righteousness. 
You only get those if you trust in Christ. When you trust in Christ, you're regenerated, so you're made spiritually alive, and the perfect righteousness of Christ is imputed to you, and God declares you perfectly righteous. So the reality is that Christ did some things for everybody, but there are applications of the atonement that only come if you trust in Him. So therefore, you can say Christ truly actually paid the penalty for everybody's sin. He tasted death for everybody. Truly, really, not hypothetically, but truly, actually. Because the issue at the judgment seat of Christ is going to be people's works. I'm not the judgment seat of Christ, the great white throne judgment. And all their works are going to be piled up. And it's going to be, well, let's pile everything up and see if you've got enough to, to equal the righteousness of Christ. Well, everybody falls short. So the condemnation is because they don't believe. Why? Because by belief you get righteousness and regeneration. It's not because you didn't believe. It's not that act of not believing that's the reason you're condemned. It's that because you didn't believe, you don't get the results of belief, which is regeneration and righteousness. And without regeneration and righteousness, you can't get into heaven. Faith is the means of appropriating that and getting the regeneration and righteousness. So I think this resolves this debate a lot better than I've read it in other places before. Hopefully it will help you think these things through a little more precisely and clearly. But this is the thrust. Jesus was made lower than the angels so that he could fulfill the original destiny of man. But in order to fulfill it in his glorification, he had to first go through the process of solving the problem, which was sin, and going to the cross and tasting death for every man. And that lays the foundation for the spiritual life, which is where we go in verse 10, and we'll begin next time with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, thank you for this time to get into this passage and to open this up and understand that you have a plan and a purpose for the human race and for every one of us, and that you sent your Son to die for each one of us without exception and to pay the penalty for sin, and that is a result of grace. And that, then, is the basis for man realizing the original purpose in Genesis 1 as it's fulfilled because of our union with Jesus Christ, who is the one who is glorified because of the fact that he solves the sin problem. We thank you for all that you're teaching us and challenging us with in your word. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.